You're listening to The Lenses Podcast from Shades Mountain Baptist Church, engaging the world through the lens of the gospel. For more information and resources, visit shades.org lenses. We are, when we were thinking of lenses and what we wanted to do, the topic of racial reconciliation very quickly came to the top. Uh, we, this is a conversation that is uh, perhaps long overdue or one we need to have regularly. So we're thrilled to start this conversation both tonight and then the next two weeks. Dr. Bass is a church member here. He's a professor at Sanford, and uh, this is right in his wheelhouse. He's going to talk from a historical perspective next week, specifically also about Birmingham, which we, living in Birmingham, can't neglect our own history as it relates to this topic. And he's going to be here next week. And then in two weeks, uh, our pastor, Danny Wood, and uh, Dr. Michael Wesley from our partner church at Greater Shiloh are going to be here and kind of have a conversation back and forth, specifically about partnership, what it looks like, and how we can learn from one another. We're also, I'm going to be inviting him and to bring whomever he knows from his church to come and join us. So hopefully that is a good night. So I wanted to keep those on your radar and ask you to come back uh, the next couple weeks. As you know, at the end of our time together, we join up around tables and discuss some questions. For the internal processors, we're going to be discussing questions 1, 6, 9, and 15. A lot of people like to think ahead and know what the questions are going to be. So I want to give those to you. Question 1, 6, 9 and 15. Our esteemed guest tonight is Dr. Robert Smith Jr. He was my professor at Beeson for preaching and is also a friend of mine. He holds the chair, uh, the Charles T. Carter Baptist chair at Beeson. You guys know Dr. Carter because he built this room by hand. That is true. We don't have to look it up. Uh, you know, he, of course, a long time. Uh, Carl Years built this room and Dr. Carter supervised. Oh, he built the bigger one. Whew, thank you. If you guys have not been to Discover Shades to hear the history of this church, you got to come. Uh, great. Um, all that to say is, uh, Dr. Smith, we are thrilled to have you and are honored. Uh, we are going to stand together and have an opening prayer by reading together, uh, reading together a passage of Scripture. So let's stand and read together. After this, I looked, and behold. Let's pray together. Great and mighty God, we thank you that one day we will be there shouting out to you. The Lamb of God, face to face with you. Father, we long for that day. And in the meantime, I pray that uh, your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. That we, your people, would be about your business of uh, longing and building a culture in our church uh, of racial reconciliation. Like it will be when we are standing face to face with you. Pray for our time tonight. Ask your Holy Spirit here in the name of Jesus. Amen. Dr. Smith, we'll hear you gladly. I just use this. Thank you. Let's pray. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Dr. Danny Wood, my brother, my friend, and to... Jacob, my esteemed student, and to all of you, my brothers and sisters, it's just a joy to be here tonight. I'm at home. I'm at home. This is a foretaste of glory divine. It really, really is. We, we are here to get into redemptive rhythm and uh, prepare for an unending worship experience, an unending gathering when there will never be a benediction any longer. Christ is the benediction. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Ray Steadman pastored the Peninsula Bible Church in Palo Alto, California, where Stanford University is based. He said, and he is in heaven now, the New Testament is not 20 centuries old. The New Testament is one century old, repeated for 20 centuries. Over and over and over again, the same challenges that were in the first century in his time were also in 
the 20th century. Racism is alive and well in the world, in America, and even in, as much as I hate to admit it, some churches, black, white, brown, red, yellow. Because racism is not a dermatological problem. It's not a skin problem. It's a homotheological problem. Homotheology is the doctrine of sin. It's a sin problem. Racism is deeper than dermatology. Racism has to do with homotheology. It's sin. And no one can get below the surface to deal with that except the Lord through the power of the Holy Spirit. Brian Loritz, Crawford Loritz's father. Brian is now pastoring in Palo Alto, California. African-American who pastored a multi-ethnic church in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, African-American. Most of the people in this congregation, probably 60% were white. So multi-ethnicity is important for him because he sees that, like we have just read, as a foretaste of the glow of glory that's awaiting us. A Kodak moment of the future state of eternity. That's exactly what it is. He writes a book, Letters to a Birmingham Jail. Responses of Martin Luther King Jr. and his thoughts. What he's getting at is, King, who was assassinated April the 4th, 1968, letters being written to King. What they think King's response would be to some of the occurrences now these many years that have passed. He writes in his contribution to the volume about a time when he was in New York City riding the subway. He and his friend uh, were having a very thought-provoking conversation, very engaging conversation. He said he noticed that every time the, the train came to a stop, he closed his eyes, his friend did, and stopped talking. And when the train started up again, the conversation resumed. But when it stopped, he closed his eyes and stopped talking. And when the train resumed in terms of its motion, he started talking again. So Brian couldn't take it any longer. And he asked his friend, why is it that you keep closing your eyes when the subway train stops and you stop talking? And then you open your eyes and you resume our conversation when it starts again. His friend said to him, my mother told me to always be chivalrous. And I'm tired. She always told me that when there was a lady and you were sitting down, get up and let the lady sit down in the seat. He was tired. And he thought the best way not to feel guilty was to close his eyes so that he would not have to feel the compulsion of putting into action what his mother told him to do. I really think we can do that when it comes to racism. We can be people of second naivety, second childhood, and dismiss all of the things that are around us. I'm okay, you okay, everything else is okay. We need all of us to open up our eyes and be watchful and vigilant. Watch as well as pray. Don't just pray. Watch as well so that we can see what's taking place around us. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 7 says, We are forever learning, but never coming to the knowledge of the truth. We are forever learning, but never arriving at the truth. More knowledge about this subject, more books, more articles about this subject, forever learning, but never arriving at the place of the truth where the truth becomes embodied in me. And I become a living epistle, an example of it, known and read of all people. 
I don't think that the 18-inch journey, the longest journey in the world, from the head to the heart has been made. We haven't made the transition from the cranial to the cardiological. It gets stuck here because once it gets here, it moves out to the hand. It is from the noose to mind to the cardia, the heart, to the splagnoin, the bowels, where the will is engaged. And I've got to do something about it. I just can't close my eyes and hope that I don't see the problems that are around me. Dr. Charles T. Carter, you know that name, was the chairperson of the Resolutions Committee of the Southern Baptist Convention, which meant that he was the head of the committee that gave the historic resolution in June of 1995 when the Southern Baptist Convention was 150 years of age. It was a resolution that offered the apology of the Southern Baptist Convention to African Americans for its mistreatment of them. That was in 1995. You know that Dr. Carter has stood against racism, has even been encountered with Ku Klux Klansmen and people in a congregation in which he had to stand up to say, if there are people who can't be a member of this church, then I can't be the pastor of it. It moved from the head to the heart, to the will, legs on prayers that were no longer passive but active. There's a book coming out. I've given you a brief uh, bibliography by Dr. Jarvis Williams and Dr. Kevin Jones of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. The book is titled, and there are two African-American co-authors there. The book is, is titled, Removing the Stain from the Southern Baptist Convention. Removing the Stain from the Southern Baptist Convention. As I recall, nine African authors, African-American authors, and three white authors. Dr. Danny Aiken, president of the Southern Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Dr. Uh, R. Albert Moeller, president of the uh, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and another white author, in which they, in a very uh, frank and honest way, deal with the stain in the Southern Baptist Convention. And this book is coming out, I think it's March. So you're talking about from the historic resolution, June 1995, to 22 years later, and there's still a stain. So anyone who says, hmm, no, racism is gone. Then may, they are merely sitting on the subway with their eyes closed, trying to ignore reality. Because just to take and put my eye, hands over my eyes and the sun is shining at high noon and to say the sun is not shining does not dismiss the fact that it is. I must live with the reality of it and ask God to make me an agent for change through his word. I have a dear friend who's one of the most outstanding preachers as far as I'm concerned uh, of our time who said to me, Bob, I've given up all hope that racial reconciliation will ever be achieved in my lifetime or ever achieved. I know him. He has the battle scars of being in this arena, trying to forge together a church, black, white, brown, yellow, red, that has been battered and bruised and beaten as a result of this issue, and there has not been a sense of unity. I'm not talking, I'm not talking about uniformity. Mm -mm. No, we are not commissioned to be alike. Not uniformity, uh, not cookie-cutter Christians. We are unique. We are distinct. But unity in Christ so that we are different but not deficient and equal in terms of being made in the 
imago Dei, the image of God, and can respect the gifts that God has given to all of us so that we can contribute to the unity of the body of Christ. I have to say to my friend, whose name I will not mention, I have not given up on the possibility that there can be racial reconciliation. I mean true racial reconciliation. I'm not talking about adhesiveness where you just stick on a band-aid to stop the bleeding. I'm talking about the coherence so that I literally get into the life of Brother Randy and Brother Randy gets in the life of Robert Smith. And incidentally, I don't need to do that. He doesn't need to do that because it's already been done. That's the way we are. He is not my white brother. He's just a brother who just happens to be white. I'm not his black brother. I'm just his brother that just happens to be black because we have decided we're not going to let color be the adjective that defines brotherhood. We're going to let brotherhood define ethnicity. So that then I am not a black preacher, I'm a preacher black. Mm. So that my preacherliness informs and fuels mm, my blackness. I have to believe that racial reconciliation is possible even in my own time. Why? Because if I don't, I am denying that the gospel has the power to do anything. I am denying the fact that that's on God's agenda. You know, Beeson Divinity School has six strategic initiatives, and one of them is racial reconciliation. But we're not original with that. You know what Beeson got it from? God. Exactly where we got it. So I want to be on God's agenda, and you need to be on God's agenda because nothing can thwart the purposes of God. God must win. And when we look at 5-9 and 7-9 of Revelation, both saying the same thing. It is saying, in essence, Christus victor. Christ is victorious. And those words were written before God ever created the world out of nothing. Jesus had already been slain. I'm trying to keep from preaching. But Jesus had already been slain in the mind of God from before the foundation of the world. So Calvary is not plan B. Calvary is plan A. God doesn't react to anything. He preacts before there's anything to act on. And therefore Jesus died in the mind of God. Revelation 13 and 8 that there was a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Jesus died in the mind of God before Adam was even created, let, let alone fail. And it has always been in God's mind and heart that his people would be in an inextricable relationship in him with each other, regardless of race, creed, or color, because what unites us is Christ. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Passion, you wanna, if you want to get a DNA of Robert Smith, you want to get his genetic coding, it's a racial reconciliation. I don't have time to just talk to you about how God has formed me from a young preacher. I'm 17 years of age, but that's, that's been my heart. I didn't seek it, it sought me. And I have to believe that God is still able to do Ephesians 3 and 20 exceeding abundantly above all we can ask to think according to the power that works in us. I think that God must get bored with some of our prayers because we don't ask for much. We ask for peanuts and he wants to give us cashews. And we keep asking for these little things. Why not ask God for something that is not humanly achievable, like this. Because this is a homotheological matter. It's a sin matter. And it is not a domatological matter, a skin matter. In 1959, there was a man by the name of John Howard Griffin from Mansfield, Texas. 
He had a passion for social justice. He saw so much social injustice and social inequities that he decided to do something about it. And what he did about it was very radical. He's decided that he was going to identify as a white man with African Americans. So he started taking skin injections to darken his skin. Oral medication to darken his skin. Set under ultraviolet light in tanning salons to darken his skin. Until it became dark enough like this. This is dark. And he traveled to two major cities, New Orleans and Atlanta, Georgia. Because he wanted to feel what black people felt. He wanted to experience the reactions that black people experienced. He wanted to incarnationalize the experience. Like Jesus in John 1.14, the word became flesh, was made flesh, and dwelt, mm, tabernacled among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. God became what God was not, human, and yet God remained who God was, God. So that God is 100% God and yet 100% human and experience everything we experience so that the Hebrew writer will remind us in Hebrews 4, 15, we have a high priest who can empathize with our creatureliness, with our infirmities. He was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. He understands hunger, rejection. He understands fatigue, etc., 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 because he tabernacled among us. Eugene Peterson takes and paraphrases uh, that in his message Bible in John 1:14. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. He says, God was made flesh and moved into the neighborhood. I think that's right moved into the neighborhood, did not communicate with us from a distance. The transcendent one became imminent, and he dwelled among us. Well, John Howard Griffin, when he got to New Orleans, he said he couldn't get a job. He couldn't cash a check. He says on every corner there echoed the N-word. He said one white bully just confronted him and beat him up just because he was he experienced the same thing in Atlanta, Georgia. Then he stopped taking the oral medications. He stopped having the injections. He stopped sitting in the tanning salons under ultraviolet light and his skin got back like this. This is my sister here. And he said, the black people became suspicious of him then. Huh. So he gets it on both sides. Suspicion hmm, from the blacks and then ostracization from the whites. He can't be black enough. He ain't white enough. He's caught up in the middle. Hmm. And when he gets back to Mansfield, Texas, he writes a book. The title of the book Black Like Me, which became a movie in 1964. I don't think the answer is whitening or blackening our skin, if you will, reddening or yellowing our skin, if you will, brownening. Mm. It's not dermatological. It's homotheological. It's an inward matter. Something radical must take place. And it has already taken place because that's exactly what Jesus did in the incarnation. God is God without skin. John 4, 24, God is spirit. And they who worship him must worship him in spirit and the truth. God the Father is God without skin. God the Son is God with skin. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. But God, the Holy Spirit, gets inside of our skin so that 
Jesus will say in John 15, 26, when the Spirit has come, he will abide with you forever. You and I are temples of the Holy Spirit. He lives in us. He leads and guides us. He's not just a paraclete who walks alongside of us. He lives in us. And when the Spirit of truth has come, John 16, 79, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And I was saying to a brother today, Martin Luther nailed 95 theses on the door of Wittenberg, Germany. The first of the 95 theses centered on the perpetual repentance of Christians. That Christians need to continually repent. What? I thought repentance was just for unbelievers. I don't need to repent. I repented one time. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the mission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. I did that according to Acts 2.38. I don't need to repent anymore. Oh, yes, you do. Christians need to repent. I need to repent every day. And one of the things we need to repent of is our stereotypical, our biases, our bigotries. Some of them we're not even aware of. Even our tears of repentance are not worthy to be accepted of God because they are even tainted. They need to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. Even my tears of repentance. In Jeremiah 13, 23, a great, two great questions are asked and they claim my attention. One, can a leopard change his spots it's a rhetorical question. No. Can a eunuch change his skin? No. There is nothing a eunuch, a black eunuch, can do to change his skin. Except give himself or herself to the one who can. I'll give you an example of that. There is a eunuch in Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 39. You know, a eunuch has his male genitalia cut off. He's emasculated. And according to Deuteronomy 23 and 1, any eunuch who has the emasculation of his male genitalia performed is not allowed to enter into the assembly of God. Can't go to church. Here's an Ethiopian eunuch. He's riding in his chariot. He is a person that has a responsible position. He is the treasurer of Candace or Kandaki, as some people would say. Very responsible. Anyone who's going to manage your money has to have some intelligence and some integrity, mm, particularly if you are the queen, the head of a matriarchal nation like this nation, Ethiopia today, which was then Nubia or Cush at that particular time. He's reading as he leaves the Pentecostal revival. He's not able to go into it. Remember Deuteronomy 23 and 1, that anyone whose male genitalia has been cut off can never enter into the assembly of the Lord. And this Pentecostal revival has exceeded the seven days because the Spirit has done something to change the agenda. And 3,000 folk have gotten saved. People are going from house to house, breaking bread, having fellowship with one another. Oh, it's a wonderful thing. But he can't go to church because his male genitalia has been cut off. And he's reading Isaiah, probably in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament. Isaiah 53, 7 and 8. As a lamb is led before the slaughter, sheep before shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, he is denied justice. And what will we say of his succeeding generation? They are not because he was cut off. He's a eunuch. He cannot further children through his wife if he has one. And the Lord says to Philip, 
and you can debate this whether you think this is the, one of the first deacons or if this is Philip the one of the twelve apostles. I'll let you debate that. It certainly has a Hellenized name, a Grecian name, but whatever the brother can preach. And he's called to leave a successful revival in Samaria and to go to the Gaza road that led down south toward Ethiopia, Cush, Nubia at that time. And he's walking alongside and seeing this man read Isaiah 53. Here are two persons that are very different. They are different ecclesiologically in terms of the church. Philip is a member of the church. The Ethiopian eunuch is not. He can't even go to church because his male genitalia has been cut off. They're different economically. As best as I can understand it, Philip is walking. The Ethiopian eunuch is riding. He even gives orders when he sees some water for baptism. He says to the chauffeur, stop. There's not a lot of water there, but it's enough for me to go down into it. The Pope preacher is walking, probably trying, trying to keep up. But this eunuch is riding in his own Lexus with a sh chauffeur. They are different economically. I think they're probably different educationally. I'm sure Philip could speak the language. But here's a person in a responsible position who had to be conversant with people who were multilinguistic. He certainly knows his own dialect from Ethiopia, if you will, Nubia, Kush. But he also knows how to speak Greek. Well, he's reading, undoubtedly, the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament. This is a black brother from Ethiopia. And Ethiopia is a country in the continent of Africa. And he's black. And he's reading. 2,000 years ago, the brother is reading. And we've been given these pseudo accounts of black people in Africa swinging from swings, ropes and so forth in Africa. Johnny Wise Miller, Tarzan. Oh, oh, oh. You know what those movies were made in? Not in Africa, in Florida. And so we get the impression black people can't read. Black people are inferior when it comes to intelligence. 2,000 years ago, here's a brother reading Isaiah 53 because Philip asked him, do you understand what you're reading? His problem was not reading. His problem was interpretation. And so here's a man who is very conversant in terms of intelligence. Here's a man who is different from Philip ethnically. He's probably a very dark-skinned man. Philip, an olive-skinned individual, ethnically different. Eschatologically, in terms of futuristically, different. Because Philip is a member of the kingdom that is not yet, but one day will be the already. This man is not a member of the kingdom. And Philip asked him a very, very important question. Do you understand what you're reading? And you know what the brother did? He told the truth. He's honest. How can I accept someone guide me? Accept hmm. someone teach me. That word guide or lead is the very same word that you see in John 16, 13. When the spirit of truth has come, he will lead. He will guide you in all truth. Same word. Same word in Revelation 7, 17, that there will be a shepherd in the center of the throne who will give us living water and will lead us, guide us. The brother said, how can I understand except someone teach me, guide me? He recognized that he was sufficient in terms of clarity on that particular passage. He could read it, but he, he really didn't understand it. You know what he did? That is, the Ethiopian eunuch did. Come here, son. 
I'm up here. Sit down. He called him up to sit in the chariot alongside of him so that one is not riding and the other is walking. They're both sitting down. And when you read this passage in Acts chapter 8, you want to discover that they went down in the water together and Philip baptized him. Hmm. But they didn't go down in the water together until they sat together. Because you can't go down in the water of baptism together until you sit together. And one of the reasons why we can't experience real reconciliation is somebody's walking and somebody's riding. Someone comes to the table with power but no conscience. And someone else comes to the table with conscience but no power. Can't be that way. Everybody that sits at the table has to have conscience and everybody has to have power so that the decision can be made by both with a conscience that's not seared but a conscience that's been infused by the Spirit of God. And so they ride together and they sit together as a prelude to reconciliation. An olive-skinned Jew and a black-skinned Ethiopian. And the Bible says in chapter 8, verse 34, that this Ethiopian eunuch asked Philip, uh, who is uh, the prophet talking about? Talk about the nation of Israel, talking about himself. Who? You know what the Bible says in verse 35 from that same verse, because this is the key to it all. Philip preached Jesus. It was an impromptu sermon. He knew that anywhere, any verse he could have read, he could have preached Jesus because the Bible is a hymn book. It's an H-I-M-B-O-O-K book. That's why the Bible was written, not so much about the plan of salvation, but the man of salvation who would carry out the plan. And he preached Jesus because we are never going to experience racial reconciliation until we experience Christo conciliation. Conciliation in Christ. You can't mandate racial reconciliation. Busing won't do it. You can't take and put three blacks on this on this table, one Asian, one Native American, one Hispanic, and two white, and say, now that's it. No! Because what's going to happen is, somebody's going to see someone at Kmart, or Walmart, I'm sorry, and they won't speak. I'm sitting next to this brother. You know, I, he came to the Hueytown Revival, and he came right up and he greeted me. Because what was true at Hueytown that night is true at Shays Mountain. Geography has nothing to do with it. I'm the biggest hypocrite in the world. If I can put my arms around him and call him brother, but I see him at Walmart and I won't speak because I don't want to be associated with this white brother. No, it's not adhesive. It's coherent. Something has to happen in my heart. It's called crystal conciliation, that we are one in Christ. And the church has to lead the way to be the front lights, the headlights, and not the tail lights, to show the world this is what it looks like. For black, white, brown, yellow, and red sisters and brothers to walk together because it's deeper than skin. I think also, let me show. Thank you, brother. You can go back, sit down. I'll see you at Walmart. Oh, stay right there. Stay right there. Stay right there. Stay right there. This is my family. These are my grandkids. I was preaching at a church several years ago. The mother and father are white. In fact, they have seven children now because they, they have another child. So they have three white daughters, and they've adopted these children from around the world. All of them have physical challenges. All of them. And you can see passed around as my sister she's so intent looking at me so I thought I would take her eyes off me and she looked there um, I was preaching on adoption that's their ministry because their family reflects in their thinking the kingdom of God every time I go to that city granddaddy stops eats and plays with his grandchildren I'm not a hero I see them they don't talk about my white mama, my, my, my white daddy. Those are my brothers and sisters. The only way they learn about racism is someone's going to have to teach them that. And do you not know this? 
Some churches are not happy about that. They don't like seeing that. They really don't. And I'm here to tell you that God has done something in that family um, that's so powerful in terms of their witness. All right, give me something else. And then we're going to stop and you can talk to me. William Sloan Coffin, I think I'll stop at this, pastored the Riverside Church in New York City. He writes a book, Credo, which in Latin means, I believe. He says there are three kinds of patriots. Patriots, patriots. Two bad, one good. He says the first kind of patriot that's bad is the patriot that is a loveless critic. One who criticizes the government but doesn't love it. Just criticizes it but doesn't love it. The other bad one is one who is an uncritical lover. Who has things that need, who needs to say things that offer a critique but won't say anything because it's my country right or wrong. He said, those are two bad kinds of patriots. He marched with Martin Luther King Jr. He's put in jail, all that kind of stuff. He paid the price. He says, the one kind of patriot that's good is a patriot that resembles one who is involved in a lover's quarrel. A lover's quarrel. I had a son in the ministry. That means spiritually. He's got his first church. He was pastoring. And he brought his congregation to, to the church where I pastor the home church to fellowship. And he said that night, he said, I want to introduce you my, to you, my wife. He had been married now for three months. And he told this story. He says, you know, we had our first real domestic discussion. They didn't have arguments. Domestic discussion. And he said, uh, she went upstairs and she came downstairs with her luggage packed. And I asked her, where are you going? And she said, I'm leaving. He said, baby, wait a minute, don't leave yet. Wait a minute, just a minute, just a minute. He went upstairs, came downstairs with his luggage. She said, where are you going? He says, where you go, I'll go. Where you live, I'll live. Where you die, I'll die. In other words, we're going to be involved in a lover's quarrel. We're going to stay with this and talk this out until we get it right. Because there's no leaving. You know, I think that's what we're going to have to do when it comes to this matter. It's not a loveless critic. Mm -mm. We love. We love the idea. We love the dream. We love the vision. Mm -mm. But it needs some critique. No, I'll just close my eyes and put a handkerchief over my eyes and just act like it doesn't exist. No. Can't be a loveless critic. And I cannot be an uncritical lover where I love it and I have nothing to say that's negative or I say negative things and, and I don't love it. No. I'm involved in a lover's quarrel. I've been dealing with this matter for a long time until the Lord calls me home. I'm involved in a lover's quarrel which means I'm not going to be around African-Americans and let them tell racial jokes about white folks, brown folks, yellow and red. Can't tolerate it. Oh, no. This is not just a public thing. It's a private thing. And I invite you to join me in the lover's quarrel because that's what God has with this world. He loves his church so much that he will not jettison, throw overboard the church. He will not abandon the church. In the words of George Matheson, Oh, love that will not let me go. I cast my weary soul in thee. He will not abandon us. And therefore, I will not abandon what is in his heart. I think that's all I'm going to say tonight. What questions do you have? Anything you need to talk about? I probably, but the Jacob went over longer than, uh, went over my time. Uh, but I teach my students, don't go over your time. 
what time was I supposed to get, get fixed? Because I got some students tonight. Did I do okay? Because I, I demand that they we're stay on, on time. We're on Kairos time. We're on Kairos Kairos time, time, not Kronos. All right. So we'll hear. Thank you, sir. Uh, Dr. Smith is uh, willing to take questions, and I, I know there are many. We'll start over here. My brother. Recently, I took a group of students to uh, from Sanford to uh, John Perkins' home and spent some time with John. Mendenhall. Uh, he's in Jackson. He's in Jackson. He did start yeah, Mendenhall. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he, he said, and we asked him the question about racial reconciliation in today's time, and he said the problem with racial reconciliation today is we've acknowledged another race where God believes that we should be reconciling as one human race and not so focused on the racial reconciliation as the primary issue. Yeah. How would you respond? I think that's right. I think we have to answer in theological terms the ontological question. Ontology just means what does it mean to be human? We do well with the epistemological question. What is truth? Mm. And we can examine this matter in a text and just deal with it literarily. But what does it mean to be human? I mean, a really a human being. What does that mean? And when I acknowledge that, that's really what King was talking about, that one of these days I dreamed that my children will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. That's true to everyone. It's an ontological question. What does it mean to be human, regardless of your class, your economics, your education? Doesn't make any difference. I just think in a church, a millionaire ought to be able to sit down right next to a person on welfare, and it make, doesn't make the difference. I could name a church right now, and it's an African-American church, where there's a reserve section for the tithers and those who pay so much money. Black church. It's classism. William Carey wouldn't baptize anyone until they got in. For seven years, he didn't get a convert in India. Until they forsook the caste and could sit down and eat with people in a lower strata level than they were. I think that's a great, that's what it means to be human. There's my brother. He doesn't look a thing like me. Not supposed to, but he's just like me because we're in Christ. That's why he's my brother. Because this stuff, after a while, upon death, you take and put two skulls, a black skull and a white skull, next to each other, and they're going to look exactly the same. It's what was in the skull the mind, and what was in the chest, the heart, that makes all the difference. That's, what it's, that's what's going to survive this. So, yeah, it's an ontological question. I think, I think it is the human question. And I don't think, that's, I don't think we're just um, using concepts. What, do you know what Jesus does? He takes out his report card in Matthew 25. Here are the subjects. When I was hungry, you didn't feed me. When I was naked, you didn't clothe me. When I was in jail, you didn't put me. Lord, what do we see? The least you've done, what you've done to the least of my brothers, you've done it unto me. Wow. Now, there it is there. If I mistreat my brother, literally, I mistreated the Lord. It's true. That's why God would say to those people in Amos' day, through Amos, I am no longer going to smell in your feast. I don't want to listen any longer to the noise of your instrumentation as far as music. You sell the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of shoes. What I want, Amos 5.24, is for justice to roll down like waters and righteousness as an ever-flowing stream. So it's important if I want to have a vertical relationship with God to make sure the horizontal relationship is in order. What I do unto my sister, I do to him. Another question. Please. Um, I teach kindergarten in a public school system. And um, about two months ago, I actually saw a really perfect example 
um, through two of our kindergarten children of this situation. And uh, we were getting ready to dismiss, and I take care of the after school for the bus kids. And two of the children came out of the bus room, one an African-American little boy, one a little red-headed white boy with blue eyes, and they were holding hands. And the little African-American boy came up to me and said, hey, hey, teacher, hey, hey. I said, baby, what is it? Turned around and looked at uh, the little red-headed boy and said, we're cousins. And I said, you are? He said, uh-huh, we cousins. I said, well, that's just wonderful, sweetheart. And I watched them all the way to the bus holding hands and just talking to each other. And I thought, you know, if that's, if we as adults could learn from those babies that they didn't see any difference, they were cousins. And, and, and they still, and this, that was two months ago, and they still, they come out of that same classroom holding hands and get on the, get on the bus together every day. And that, you know, that's what I see. And so there's a chance we can see it in our lifetime that we can see it with, but it's going to start with our children. Let me read something to you. I've got time to do this, Jeff, uh, Jacob. Uh, this is, these are some excerpts from our city. I live in Cincinnati, Ohio. The Cincinnati Herald. I'll just read a couple paragraphs. It has to do with the church. White, black, Hispanic congregations merge into one. Three local congregations, one white, one predominantly black, and one Hispanic, who share the same building in Norwood, which is a province in Cincinnati, Ohio, but at separate times for separate worship services. One building, they share that, and they have three separate worship services, and they're separate congregations and have been so for many years, and they have their churches of the same denomination. Church of Christ finally decided to become one inclusive congregation, one denomination, three different ethnicities, three different services, three different times, finally became one congregation. The merger will be effective January the 1st, 2017. Then they list the, uh, the churches. Norwood Church of Christ, white congregation, Madisonville Church of Christ, predominantly black congregation, and Iglesia de Cristo, Hispanic congregation. The new inclusive congregation will become the Indian Mound Avenue Church of Christ. Such interracial merging of congregations is virtually, un is virtually unprecedented anywhere within the Church of Christ. Now let me read the last. pastor that was appointed as a senior pastor who happens to be black, the other two are minister of music and associate pastor, the white and the Hispanic, uh, talk about the importance of bringing the church of Christ on earth together as it is in heaven. Gregory Jasper, who led the predominantly African-American congregation, will serve as the senior minister at Indian Mound Church. Goes on to say, periodically services will be held in which both English and Spanish are used for singing and teaching of the word of God. However, it is most prudent that generally two services will be held each week, one in English and one in Spanish, so that those who speak each respective language can easily be taught and learn the ways of God without the need of an interpreter. Well, I could go on, but that's enough. My only question, I think that's absolutely wonderful. But why did it take so long? One denomination in one building, and yet three different churches. What brought them to this ultimately was economics. We can exist if we come together and form one congregation. If we try to do it alone, we can't. I don't know what it's going to take. But if the Lord has to do what he did in first century church to accomplish his will. Remember Jesus' last words to the disciples with these words. And you shall uh, be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the utmost parts of the earth. And they just hung around Jerusalem until persecution had to break out. And when persecution broke out, according to Acts chapter 8, verse 1 and 2, all of the people except the apostles 
left Jerusalem and scattered. And verse 4 said, everywhere they scattered, they scattered the word. So they were scattered in order to scatter the word. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the utmost parts of the earth. I don't know what it's going to take. But in order for God to accomplish what we've just read in Revelation 7 and 9 and 5 and 9, God will do something that will absolutely blow our minds. And I believe it's in our lifetime. So it's going to have to stop, start with cousins. That's really what's going to start with me. Other questions? My sister and my sister. Two sisters. Yes, ma'am. Um, I loved your example of leading with our identity um, in our faith and following with our racial identity. Um, something that I see a lot um, in today's culture is we function under this assumption of colorblindness, um, and we fear that um, identifying racial inequality will then make us racist. Um, so how do we, I guess, identify racial inequality without making everything about race? I don't think you have to make it about race. It is. It's about, it's about race. It's there. Um, I think I have to know it's there and deal not with just the consequence, but the antecedents. Not just with the fruit, but the root. Hmm? Start dealing with those things. My mother, I mean, we were poor. Really, we weren't poor. We were poor. But we didn't think we were poor because everybody else around us was poor. Mama never wasted anything, food-wise, material-wise. I can remember a very warm blanket that Mama made. You know, corduroy pants got a hole in them, and she put a patch there. Piece of rayon, piece of cotton, piece of denim, piece of polyester, piece, piece. And it didn't look good, but I declare it was warm. And you know what? There was a thread, one color thread, that sold all of those pieces together. Corduroy, denim, rayon, polyester, whatever. Now there's some monochromatic blankets, just one color, beautiful, very expensive. Get them from the stores, $200, fine. But I tell you, I would rather have mama's patchwork quilt held together by one thread than any monochromatic blanket in all the world. You know what God is doing? You're a piece and I'm a piece. Look at us. We're different. We're just different. Number one, you're female, I'm male. You're white and I'm black. But there's a thread that ties us together. It's red. And that red is the blood of Jesus. Ties us together. So that we're on display, and when people see us, they say, wow, what makes them unified, even though they're not uniform? And it's that red thread, it's that red blood that causes me to respect your giftedness and your beauty. You are a beautiful person, not just physically, your spirit. I sense that right now. And I would expect that if I saw you at Walmart, you'd have that same smile. Because it's genuine. It's not something you just stick on just for this particular event. It's something that is put in you and it is totally filtered, been filtered throughout your whole human anatomy. It's just you. It's intrinsic. It's you. So what I'm saying is I don't think we have to always talk. I don't like this thing about bring up the bring up the racial car. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about reckoning. You, you, you. Oh, I don't go into all that, but let's just put it this way: You female, are you married? All right, I may be prophetic now. Watch this. <laughs> Continue. <laughs> it's a fact. If you went to get a car as a female, more than likely the salesman would treat you a bit differently than if you had a husband and you were together or he went alone. It's a fact. And that's, that only has to do with gender. So I got to face the reality of that. It's there. Now what am I going to do about it? How will I live out um, crystal conciliation so that people will be contagiously 
infected and captivated by my attitude and my spirit. And I'm not talking about some phony, false stuff. I'm talking about stuff that's really there. And only the Spirit of God can give you love. I'm talking about agape, real, unconditional love. You don't have to be colorblind. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about seeing all the colors and seeing that God who made us in all these different colors hmm, is a God who does not erase our distinctions. People from every nation, distinction, tribe, distinction, kindred, distinction, tongue, distinction, all distinction, yet one. So he doesn't erase the distinctions. He just produces unity. Yeah. You understand what I'm trying to say? All right. You want me to pray about what I told you about? Okay. I'm going to remember you. I'm serious. I'm praying about that. All Dr. Right. Smith, we have, we have time for one more question. One more question. Uh, it was yeah. essentially the same question. So. Was it the same? Yes. All right. Are you married? Oh, okay. You, I don't need to pray for you then. All right. That's all right, then. You're all right. We'll, we'll have the one more question from up front. All right. Did your wife come here tonight? Where's she Suzanne? She snuck in the back, and the uh, the baby got a little fussy. You should have told me that. Well, brother. I don't think he liked your last point, so he decided. Oh, see, to... little John. Hey, brother. Dr. Smith, if you were to um, try to integrate uh, a predominantly black church and a predominantly white church in this culture, what would be your like, kind of first steps? How would you go about integrating that? Let me give a couple examples. I preached Sunday in Columbus, Georgia. The pastor is white. 98% of the folk are black. And he's been there 44 years. You can't go anywhere without folk just bombarding him with love. We went to eat at... Um, Longhorns, which is one of our favorite restaurants. Can't eat. Hi, pastor. Hi, baby. I know. Grown folks, young folks, old folks. No. There is, um, let me get right to your question because I can give you all kinds of examples. I think it's going to be very important for you to have, let's say you're the pastor, for you to have people in leadership who look like your constituency. You can't have everyone in leadership who's white. If I'm the pastor, I can't have everyone in leadership who's black. I've got to have a white minister of music. I need to have an Asian. I'm talking about people. I'm not just talking about color. I'm talking about people who are qualified. An Asian as a Christian education director. So that people can look up and say, hmm. That looks like a church. And those individuals um, look like me. That this church is really serious about that. So that I don't, well, let me put it this way, since you're white, you don't assign all the black people in terms of serving to the culinary committee, cooking, or nothing wrong with that. It's a great ministry. And just parking is a great ministry. But I don't have anyone that's a deacon. I don't have anyone that's a trustee. I don't have anyone who works in finance. You follow what I'm saying? In other words, it's very important. You, if I had time to talk to you, it's amazing how Jesus chose his disciples. You talk about integration? You talk about a Matthew who is a publican and a Simon who's a zealot. You know what a zealot um, was supposed to do. This was the oath. Since a publican or a tax collector cheated their own people like Zacchaeus, collect taxes for the Roman Empire and then pocket some extra in his own pocket, a zealot would say, that is a Jewish patriot, a revolutionary, if I get a chance, I will slit the throat of a publican or tax collector. Well, that's what Matthew is. And Jesus put side by side a tax collector and a zealot. Potential mutual homicide. <laughs> and he puts them together. There's integration. And what does it? Because he's in the midst. It's a wonderful thing. 
when we can love each other and forgive each other. I'm telling you, there's nothing like it. Because I need to repent. And all of us do. Thank you for your time. Dr. Smith, thank you very much. I've made the executive decision for time's sake that uh, instead of gathering around tables, we're going, I'm going to challenge you to uh, take these questions, ask them of yourselves. When you talk about it with your family, take these. You can ask any of these questions about tonight's topic and, uh, and then bring these questions back, bring these things back for the next two weeks as well. We're definitely looking forward to it. Before you go, I want to let you know that if in this room tomorrow, we have community prayer for missions. That scattering Dr. Smith talked about, we're praying for that. If you can't join us on that uh, music stand back there is all the prayer prompts we're praying through tomorrow. Grab one of those and pray with us. Uh, we're going to close by standing together and praying together this short prayer. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, give us the grace, wisdom, and boldness to make our church look more like heaven. In the name of Jesus, amen. Good night, friends. Have a great night. Great to see you.